chapter 21, this is the Sunday where I tried to cover five chapters in one service, okay? So you get no intro, you just get the sermon. Last week, we were in chapter 20, Paul was at Miletus, he called for the elders of the church in Ephesus. And he says spiritual leadership requires the leader setting the example. And it also, then he gave an exhortation to those elders to shepherd the flock of God. And he told them, I'm, I will not be back. Because he know he has a date with death in the near future. And so now they leave Miletus and they go from city to city to city by way of ship. And then at Acts chapter 21, he gets to a city. Just open your Bibles there, your Bible app, and just let it be, and we'll reference verses. He gets to this city by the name of Tyre, or Tyre. And it's there in Tyre that he meets a group of disciples. And while he's there with these group of disciples, they plead with Paul, saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He's completed his third missionary journey. He's going back there to the church to, to give a report of everything that's been happening, everything that's been going on. And so, so, so they say, Paul, don't, don't go to Jerusalem. And the text says it's by the Spirit that they ask him not to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because they know in Jerusalem there's nothing but hurt, harm, danger, and possibly even death in Jerusalem. And so they're looking out for Paul, saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul says, no, I got to go to Jerusalem. So, so from Tyre, he gets to Jerusalem. Paul, before he gets to Jerusalem, they go from Tyre to Caesarea. And it's there in Caesarea that they find a man by the name of Agabus. Agabus had come down from Judea and prophesied that Paul would be bound hands and feet and delivered into the hands of Gentiles. Then look at verse number 13 of chapter 21. Chapter 21, Acts chapter 21, verse 13 records Paul's response to the prophecies that he's received about not going to Jerusalem. Acts 21, verse 13 says, Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready, not only to be in prison, but even to die 
in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, I know that even by the Spirit, it has been predicted that harm will come upon me when I get to Jerusalem. But Jesus has told me I've got to go to Jerusalem. In the midst of possible imprisonment and even death, Paul says, I got to go. Paul teaches us a little bit about, first of all, the courage of conviction. The courage of conviction. The courage of conviction is first rooted in calling. The courage of conviction is first rooted in calling. The courage of conviction knows its purpose. It has a goal, an objective. Paul knew his purpose. His purpose was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all people. And this is how you know he had a conviction because even though people were telling him bad things would happen, to him in Jerusalem, he would not let that deter him. Friends, you need to have courage about your conviction. And if you cannot be courageous and bold in your convictions, then they are not convictions at all. What do I mean by convictions? I simply mean principles, truths, doctrines that you are willing to die for. Courageous conviction is rooted in calling, and it's also rooted in commitment. Friends, con for conviction, convictions require commitment. In other words, you must be willing to pay a price for your convictions. Look at verse 13 again. Paul says, I am ready not only to be in prison. Most of us would have been like, oh, I'm out. But he says, I'm also ready to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Let me say this. Some people will argue about anything. And they will think what they are arguing for is a conviction. However, oftentimes the things that we argue about are not convictions at all. They're simply beliefs. The late Dr. Howard Hendricks, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, said a belief is something you'll argue for, but a conviction is something you'll die for. Paul had a conviction. He was willing to die for the sake of the gospel. That's how we know it was a conviction. The problem with the church here now in the western part of the hemisphere is that we want the Christian life to be too easy. We don't want to pay the price for our convictions. But that's how the faith has been lived out from the very beginning. Can I call up some witnesses real quick about people who had courageous convictions? Come, come, come here, Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro. They, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
made a golden image and, and he made a law that everyone had to fall down and worship this golden image. And the law said whoever did not worship this golden image would be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. These three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down. Why? Because they had a conviction that they would serve no other God but Yahweh. So even in the midst of a government that was hostile to their religion, they remained firm in their convictions and they refused to bow down. And the end of the story is God let them get into the fire, but God stepped in the fire with them. And friends, that's the God we serve. He may not always deliver you from the fire, but he'll get in the fire with you. And that's the kind of God I need that will protect me even in the midst of fire. They, they had convictions, and they stood by their convictions, and they were willing to die for it. Let me see if I can call up another, another witness. Come here, Daniel. Not you, Daniel. The biblical Daniel. Daniel served at a time... At this time, King uh, Darius was in power. And King Darius was talked into a law that no one could pray to any god or man except King Darius. And the penalty for breaking the law was to be thrown into a lion's den. Daniel found out about the law. So guess what Daniel did? He went up into the upper chamber of his house, got on his knees, and started praying to Yahweh. Why? Because Daniel had a conviction that he would only worship God and God alone. And he was willing to die. He knew the law. He knew the penalty for breaking the law, and yet he still prayed to God. The king finds out that Daniel has broken his law. He, he broken his law. He's, he's distressed, but he knows that he has to uh, enforce the law. And so Daniel is uh, uh, sentenced to being put into the lion's den, where the lions were supposed to eat him alive. But God got into the lion's den with Daniel. And so that Daniel, they, the, the old song used to say, they used uh, the lions for a pillow. God, shut up the mouth of the lions. I can even call some, 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 some American individuals who had courageous convictions. Patrick Henry said, give me liberty. Oh, you can help me preach this thing. Or give me death. That was courageous conviction. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., had courageous conviction. He believed, he was had the conviction that all people are created equal. All people deserve liberty and all people deserve justice regardless of race or color. So Reverend King went on nonviolent protests and marches. He participate, participated in civil disobedience for the cause of justice. Can I, and let me slip this in. This is for free. I won't charge you for it this week. Justice and the fight for justice is not a political issue. For the church, justice and the fight for justice is a gospel issue. 
I got one clap and two amens. Let me try this again because this is the church. If we we can't say amen on this, then we don't know the gospel, and I wonder if any of us are saved then. At the heart of the gospel is justice. God's law was broken, and because God is holy, justice demanded death. And so because we were not fit to die our own death, God's justice demanded that there be a perfect individual who would die for the sin of the world. And so what did God do? He sent his son to die on the cross for your sin and my sin so that God's justice could be fulfilled. And so friends, justice is a gospel issue, not a political issue. Now, I don't care where you fall on this whole flag thing. We're not going to argue about that this morning. And the church said amen. But you need to first see it through your gospel lenses, not your American lenses. And then you can go from there. That's okay. That's okay. I'm, o- I'm okay with getting some dirty emails. Some people not showing back up. Because I am a preacher of the gospel. And if I don't teach you about the gospel and the implications of the gospel, that's a dereliction of duty. That means I need to be fired. Now, notice, I did not tell you how you should feel about this whole flag and the kneeling thing. I didn't tell you that. I'm just helping you to process through it as a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ rather than an American. You have not heard me say whether I think people should kneel or not kneel. You, you have to come to that conclusion for yourself. Take me out to some coffee. Actually, I hate coffee. I'll drink hot tea. You can learn my opinion. But you didn't come to the church this morning to hear my opinion. You, heard, you came to hear from God. And, the only, and, and only when I speak from Bible are you hearing from God. If I'm not preaching Bible, then you're just hearing Brandon. Okay, I'll move on. I was preaching about Dr. King. Dr. King, because he fought for the issue of justice, received all kinds of threats and assassination attempts on his life and his own family. Despite those attacks, threats, and imprisonments, guess what he kept doing? Kept on marching. Kept on speaking truth to power. Why? Because he had a conviction that equal rights was fundamentally human rights. And he was willing to die for his conviction. He preached about the mountaintop. He said, I may not get there with you. He was willing and ready to die for his conviction. I would and wish and pray to God that we had a church that would stand up for its conviction. Not just the convictions, I'm getting in trouble today. Not just the convictions of abortion and, uh, and gay marriage. Those are our convictions. And the church said, we believe in the sanctity of life. Because God is the creator of life, so all life has inherent dignity. We believe that marriage is between one man and one woman because that's, God, that's how God created from the very beginning and the end. On those convictions, we ought to stand. But don't y'all know that God is about, and the gospel has implications about more than just abortion and gay marriage? Let me tell you, ooh, somebody messed with me this week. Do you know we need to, I'm going to do a a sermon series 
from the minor prophets, you know, Amos, Jonah, Micah, all those kind of people. Do you know why God, even if you read the beginning of Isaiah, do you know why God was so full of anger and wrath a lot of the times in the minor prophets? Because of oppression and injustice. And God's wrath was poured out on nations because they didn't treat the underprivileged, the, the, those who didn't, uh, because we didn't treat them right. God poured out his wrath against nations. And so we ought to be as adamant and convict, convicted about justice issues as we are about abortion and, and, and sanctity of marriage. Y'all, again, I don't preach political messages. I preach the gospel. We got to be convicted about how we treat the poor. This Bible, this is gospel implications, church. And let's love them first, and then we can worry about not enabling, enabling them. Most of us are paralyzed when it comes to loving the poor because we don't want to enable. Jesus told us to love our neighbor as ourselves. We'll work on the empowering part, I promise you. Because I want to help the poor get out of their poverty. I'm still preaching the text. It's about conviction, courageous convictions. It takes courage to stand up in a church, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but toot toot. <laughs> and offend Democrats and Republicans. Because Jesus was neither. I got four more chapters. Let's keep moving. So Paul makes it to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem, and everything that's been prophesied happens. The question is, was Paul disobedient? Because if you read the first part of chapter 21, it talks about by the Spirit they prophesied, by the Spirit they said this. And there is actual pen and paper and ink that's been wasted. <laughs> Forget y'all about whether Paul was obedient or disobedient. When these people are prophesying, y'all, they are not giving prohibition. They're just giving predictions. They're not saying, Paul, the Spirit is telling, for you, telling us you should not go or don't go. They're just saying, we know this is going to happen, but we don't want you to go because we love you. So Paul was, oh, I believe Paul was obedient to Christ because it's through Jerusalem that the gospel's going to get to Rome. If he doesn't get to Jerusalem, he can't say, I want to take my case to Caesar. And so at the end of 26, we're going to see the king Agrippa says, if he would not have appealed to Caesar, we would have let him free. Part of our hearts go like, dang, Paul, shut up. But by, by God's providence, it was God's will for him to go to Jerusalem so that the gospel could get to Rome. 
And so now he gets to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. He's doing some purification things. And then he's arrested in the temple by some Jews that came from Asia. And so the rest of the text through chapter 26 is all about Paul's, let's say this, apologies. No, 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 no. Not saying I'm sorry. Apologia in the Greek means defense. I used to be very dogmatic about this. I told my wife I would never apologize to you. I repent. But I don't want to apologize because I'm not going to defend myself. That's totally for free. It has nothing to do with the sermon. I'll repent. I really will. I'll confess my sin and plead for forgiveness. But apologies, they're defensive. That's why some of y'all's arguments never get resolved because everybody's apologizing. Defending yourself, your actions, your words. That's for the one person that needed that this morning. He's arrested. And Paul, he raises his hand and says, I make this defense before you. We're in chapter 22 now. Paul simply, in his defense, starts sharing his life story. He opens by sharing his life before his conversion. He says, I'm a good old Jew. I was zealous before God. I persecuted the way. He says, then I had my Damascus Road experience. I met Jesus for myself. And Jesus wanted to know why was I persecuting him. And he shares that it was on the Damascus Road that he was converted. And because of Christ, the glory of Christ, he was blinded, physically blinded. And Christ told him to go to Ananias. And Ananias would tell him what to do. And so he just simply shares his story, and it is through his conversion that he shares his calling. His calling was to be a witness for Jesus Christ to everyone about what he had seen and what he had heard. Now, here's the thing. Everyone includes the Gentiles. Why are you bringing this up? Remember the setting. Jews have arrested him. He's now on trial before a Jewish crowd. He's making his defense before a Jewish crowd. Last thing he says in his speech is, Christ told me he's going to send me to the Gentiles. Here's what chapter 22, verse 22 says. 22 and 22 says, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. What can we learn from this section of the story? First, like Paul, we all have stories. We all have a story about what God has been doing and continues to do in our lives. We all have a story about what he did pre-conversion. We all have a conversion story. And let me encourage somebody. I used to <laughs> apologize for my conversion story before I gave it. 
because I didn't have this Damascus Road experience. I grew up in a preacher's kid's home. My mom was a preacher's kid. She took me to church every Sunday. I heard the gospel every Sunday. One Sunday, I responded to the gospel. Boom, I'm saved. And I used to apologize saying, my story is it's not very exciting. Anytime a person is brought out of darkness into the light, that's exciting. And so you, you don't have to be ashamed of your story. Even if it's just, I, I grew up in a Christian home and boom, one day I understood the gospel and I responded. Praise God. Because there's going to be a lot of people just like you who grew up in a Christian home and then end up in hell. So you can be grateful and proud, godly proud, of your story. But even if you do have one of those stories that's got a lot of brokenness in it, thank you. God knows how to take our brokenness and make it beautiful. What the world wants more from the church is for us to share our brokenness. You need to tell it. The church needs it and the world needs it. What do you mean the church needs it? Because somebody's going to be encouraged by your story. Somebody needs your testimony. Friends, as I look back over my life, I can truly say that I've been blessed. I've got a testimony. Somebody needs your testimony. This morning, somebody is hurting. And they just need to hear that God still works. Somebody has a child that's going through what you went through. And that parent is wondering, what's going to happen to my child? And they just need to know that God can bring back the way of a child. And sometimes it's just a story that can keep a person moving on. Your story can keep someone from committing suicide. all got a story that we ought to be willing to share. Second thing that we learn from this text is that racism is still a barrier to the gospel. These Jews are hearing how God is working, has worked in the life of Paul, but they, and they're listening up to the point that he says Gentile. Then they're like, kill him. Racism is the belief that there is a superior race. And that, superior, that feeling and thought of superiority leads to hatred and prejudice and bigotry. Jews like, we're the chosen people. They didn't understand that, the gospel, that, that because of the gospel and because of Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but we are all one in Christ. couldn't overcome the fact that people that don't look like me, people that don't talk like me, people that don't think like me, people that don't vote like me can be my brother and sister in Christ. And so for them, it became a barrier to responding to the gospel. And I think it's high time for the church to repent of its silence and participation in this sin of racism. I wish I had a praying church. 
I said it's high time for the church, all churches, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, and whatever the other box stands for, to repent of its silence and participation in the sin of racism. Lest I be accused of having a racist agenda, let me get back to the text. After they are saying, kill them, kill them, kill them, kill them, things just go crazy. They're starting to get chaotic. So a Roman official shows up and he says, I got to get this under control. And so he shows up, wants to know what's going on. And then they make their accusations against Paul. And this Roman official like, I don't understand. He hasn't done anything. This is a dispute about y'all's own religion. And so the, this uh, tribunal, he takes Paul and he brings him now before the Sanhedrin Council. Sanhedrin Council is made up of 70 Jewish men who hear different cases and disputes. And so Paul is now brought before this Jewish Sanhedrin Council. And he makes his defense again. Paul says, chapter 23, verse 1, he says, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Brothers, I, verse 6, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So this statement about the resurrection leads to a big argument. Why? Because the Sanhedrin Council is made of both Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees, they're the law keepers and they're zealous for the law. They believe in the resurrection. Sadducees, on the other hand, only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament. Thus, they don't believe in the resurrection. And so now the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going against each other. The whole time forgetting that, oh, we were all together a while ago against this man named Paul. And so they just go backward and forward about this issue, and it, it, and it gets so bad that it becomes violent. And so this Roman official grabs Paul, takes him away, and then we get to verse ch chapter 23, verse 11, and here's what chapter 23, verse 11 says. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Friends, this, this verse is a verse of comfort because it reminds us in the worst of situation, situations and circumstances Christ is always with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. This verse also reminds us that Christ keeps his promises. What do you mean? Remember the Great Commission? The Great Commission where God said, go make disciples. Then at the end of the Great Commission, he said, and lo, I'll be with you always until the end of the age. This is a reminder that even in the worst of situations, Christ is with us. 
Christ does three things for Paul in this verse. First, there's a word of consolation. He tells Paul, take courage. In other words, Paul, don't give up. Be, be encouraged. It's a word of comfort. Be strong. I approve of you. I'm pleased with you. I'm happy with you. Second, there's a word of commendation. He, he commends him. He says, you've testified about me in Jerusalem. You've done my will. There's a word of consolation, a word of commendation. Then finally, there's a word of confirmation. He says, and you'll also testify about me in Rome. Paul, this is not the end. There's more for you in the future. And from here, Paul is now sent to the Gentiles to be put on trial. He's sent to Felix, who is a governor. Felix takes the case, and then he gives Paul a chance to defend him. It's typical court. There's the prosecution. They say he's, they accuse him of sacrilege. He's, he's profane the temple. They, 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 they accuse him of false teaching because he's preaching about Jesus. And he's also bringing Gentiles into the body of Christ now. And so Felix says, Paul, make your case. Chapter 24, verse number 14. Paul says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, the way refers to the Christian church, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards God and man. Paul essentially says to the governor, I'm not the one who should be on trial here. They should. If it's anyone that that's, can be accused of false teaching, and that can be accused of sacrilege and sedition, it's them. I believe everything that God has spoken in the Old Testament, which is why I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And it's because of that I believe in the resurrection more specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My hope is in him. Paul says, I'm, I'm on trial because I believe there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. A couple of observations. First, Paul helps us to learn a little bit about eschatology, the study of end times or end things. He says, everybody's going to rise from the dead. The just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, everybody's going to rise. And friends, after we rise, Jesus will either be your savior or your judge. He will either be the one from, for which you are saved from your sins 
or he will be the one who judges you to eternal, to eternal damnation because of your sin. And the call for you today is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ by trusting him and him alone based on his substitutionary death for you and his victorious resurrection from the dead. Because we all will face Jesus Christ. We also have a responsibility to live accordingly. Resurrection is not just a reality, but it's a call to a new way of living. Romans chapter 6. So, Felix, he hears this case and he says, well, Paul, got some money? In other words, Felix was waiting for Paul to bribe him. If Paul would have bribed him, then Paul would have been set loose. Greed and materialism are also barriers to the gospel. Just like racism, and legalism, that's the Pharisees, the belief that keeping law saves you and makes you right with God, so does materialism, the chasing after things, idolatry. So Paul stays in custody for two years. Felix is followed by another governor, and that governor decides I'm going to send him to the king now. So Paul is just going up the, the ladder here. He goes now to King Agrippa. And king Agrippa says, Paul, make your case. We're now in chapter 25 and 26. Verse chapter 26, verse 6. Here's what Paul says before King Agrippa. And now I stand here on trial because my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And it's for this hope that I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is this thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Skip to verse 22. Paul says, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said will come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. King Agrippa hears the gospel that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And here's King Agrippa's question to Paul, verse 28. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul's response to King Agrippa, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, 
except for these daggone chains. Paul again thinks that the reason he's on trial is because of his hope. It's hope that's on trial. Hope is on trial, friends. And so Paul says, my hope is rooted in what Moses and the prophets revealed and proclaimed that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead. I'm actually a faithful Jew. Matter of fact, I'm a fulfilled Jew, not a false Jew. Because I believe that in Jesus Christ, everything that's been promised in the Old Testament has been fulfilled. Because of that, that I am on trial. King Agrippa's here's the gospel. He has the opportunity to believe the gospel. His decision was to postpone. Friends, this is the tragedy of this text and of every person who has heard the gospel and not yet responded. The tragedy is believing that you are invincible. The tragedy is that you would play Russian roulette with your soul. The tragedy is that you believe just because you are young that you've got forever to finally make a decision to trust in Jesus Christ. The tragedy is that King Agrippa decided to wait, to hesitate, to delay making a decision to trust in Jesus Christ. This man was almost a Christian. Almost is all the way to hell. And friends, my word to you today is don't wait, don't hesitate. Come to Jesus today while you still have time. Tomorrow is not promised. At any moment, God could take back his breath. and You'd have to face him give an account for your sins. There's also another tragedy. The other tragedy is that sharing Christ with others might, may be a belief for some rather than a conviction for all. I got some amens when I said tomorrow is not promised. So followers of Jesus Christ, what will you do with that knowledge? 
how much more time will you continue wasting? Five chapters, one sermon. 